0: M- merkel
1: Media.
2: Kill. The Mockingbirds.
1: birds слушam can't say i
2: Welcome back to another motherfucking episode of Kill the Mockingbirds with your host, Sean Chris, Joel Thomas and the CERN Hydrant Collider. Oh my God, there's some sort of crazy looking cat. It's like six foot at the shoulders. It looks
3: like a panther, but it's got an ape face. I'm going to get on top of it and ride it up out of here. They're coming. Brat, brat.
2: Woo. (laughs) Coming in (laughs) hot. what is up y'all uh let's get all the stuff out front kill mockingbirds.com coming very soon but for now you can hop on kill the mockingbirds podcast on instagram sean chris music on instagram van tesla music on instagram kill the mockingbirds telegram and then you know give us a five-star review joel tell them how easy it is yeah
3: it's so easy it's why you're listening to us you just give us a five-star review um Apple, you can actually write a nice review. We've been getting a ton of nice reviews here lately. We really appreciate it, guys. Spotify's got the new feature you guys have seen. We've been putting up some cool polls, some funny polls. You guys can poll there, and you can tell us how you feel about each individual episode, too. And give us five stars, because if you know anything about the way the algorithms work, you give us five stars. It helps to get deeper in the algorithm so other people can see it that don't even know about us. And we've been having a lot of that happen lately, so we really appreciate appreciate you guys a lot. Now, we have got a phenomenal guest today. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting James when I was out in the West Coast uh, in Washington State, uh, Seattle, Portland area. So, uh, Washington State is where I met James. Uh, If anybody knows, Tony was supposed to meet James as well, but Tony was hemmed up on a plane flight for a whole day. So we got to meet James. James got to take us around the area where there's just tons and tons of high strangeness. And he talked to us about several cryptids in the area. It was just really good. And we got a lot of it uh, on film that we're going to use for the documentary that we're putting out in the fall. But at the end of the day, I want to kick it to you, James. Let him know where to find you. Let him know what you do. And then we'll just start talking about all the weird stuff that you've seen been a part of and that is going on in Washington state.
0: Well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's a real pleasure. And I certainly enjoyed meeting you uh, when you came out uh, uh, to the Columbia River Gorge area. So, yeah, I am uh, located in uh, southern Washington, uh, the border between... Oregon and Washington is the Columbia river and, uh, the Columbia river, it's the only sea level passage through the cascade mountains. And it is a stunningly beautiful area. Now I've lived in Washington since 1988. Uh, when I came out here with the military, I was an infantry soldier and <clears throat> I, uh, me and my pals did a lot of exploring. We came down to the gorge a lot. Uh, but I mostly lived up in Seattle. And then, about a little over two years ago, my mother in law died. And she had started the first legal pot shop on the West Coast. And uh, kind of, uh, um, so she had passed away, and someone from the family needed to run the business. Now, I'll tell you, it was never a part of our family plan to run a cannabis store. Um, but if we uh, didn't come down and run it, uh, it would just have shriveled up and um, become worthless. Um, she had two stores. Uh, one was this cannabis store. And uh, the other was sort of like a convenience store. And um, when I got there, I recognized that it, it wasn't the best format for the area. I have a lot of experience uh, with outdoor adventure. You know, as I mentioned, I was an infantry soldier. I was a wild then force firefighter uh, mountain guide and, uh, more recently a search and rescue EMT. And so I knew that I could, um, she had a commercial building with several bays in it and we didn't want to let that go to waste. So we converted that convenience store into an outdoor store and it wasn't long before we started getting a lot of people coming in and telling us really strange stories. They were telling us their Sasquatch encounters, their UFO sightings and some other stranger stuff too. And so I recognized that, um, this was something that was personally interesting to me and uh, also a way to sort of set our business apart. So we put up a big sign that said, "File your paranormal reports here. And oh boy, did we start getting them? It's sort of like, you know, when you are out in the woods and you tip over a rock and there's like all these critters crawling around in there, that's kind of exactly what it was like. Like once we sort of opened the floodgates, I was like, oh my gosh. Now, you know, when um, you've been to the Gorge, so you know what a insane place it is. It's kind of unlike any place on earth. Uh, before I get into that, um, so the best place to find me is uh, MargiesOutdoorStore.com. You know, my mother-in-law's name was Margie, and so we kept the name. Um, we have a, a Facebook page, but we're still kind of getting our social media act together. And I'm just excited to be able to talk about some of these incredible experiences uh, that have been coming walking through our door. I would say that in the we've been doing this a little over a year now and we've had well over 100 different reports. Uh, some of those reports are things that people uh you know take the time to write it out. A lot of it is people coming in and telling us their story. Of course, you know, some people come in and they're just getting some kicks and you know it's no harm no foul. We don't mind if people uh want to you know have a little fun with it. But the vast majority of what we hear seem to be really honest, genuine people earnestly telling about a story that um they don't have a real good explanation for it. They don't, you know, it's not part of the normal experience. So um, let me sort of set the stage of, of what we're talking about when we talk about the Columbia river gorge. So Columbia river gorge is um, sort of in the heart of the cascade mountains. And from my stores, uh, we are within 40 miles of three strata volcanoes. So that's of course, Mount hood, Mount Adams and Mount St. Helens. And Mount St. Helens is famous because, uh, it exploded in 1980. And, uh, so volcanically active region, uh, those volcanoes are actually some of the youngest geologic features in the area. Uh, so the Columbia river has been around for about 20 million years. And, um, It is a very strong energetic flow. Uh, If you can just imagine something that's been uh, flowing through an area for 20 million years, that's a very well-established, strong current of energy. And the Columbia River is the largest um, river outside of the Mississippi in the United States, and it is the largest river that flows into the Pacific Ocean on either North or South America. So, this is a um, very powerful energy current, and it's been running for a very, very long time. So, like I said, that's about 20 million years old, and then uh, about 15 million years ago, something happened near the border of Idaho and Washington, and these enormous fissures opened up uh, from deep within the Earth. And just like in Hawaii, fountains of lava came spewing out of it, and they entirely filled Eastern Washington up like a bathtub with uh, lava basalt. And uh, if you can imagine, they've estimated that there's over 300 different uh, eruptive events, and that lava literally flowed from Idaho to the Pacific Ocean. That's nearly 300 miles, and so. Um, while this was happening and there's all kinds of geologic details on dates and everything, but approximately 15 million years ago, literally you had an apocalypse of fire going on here and it stacked up these different flows like layer cake. And so when you drive to the gorge, uh, you see these, um, like stratifications of these crazy columns and they're broken up into layers. It's, um, an incredibly uh, unique geologic area. There's only two or three other places like it on Earth. Um, Some people suspect that it may have been a meteor that had pierced the Earth's surface and uh, caused that to happen. Uh, What's really strange is that those kind of lavas um, aren't supposed to occur um, here in Washington State. The kinds of eruptions we have are the kind like Mount St. Helens, which are more of uh, pumice and ash. And we have lahars, which are sort of like these boiling hot concrete flows. Um, But the red uh, and orange drippy lava, not supposed to happen. So very, uh, very strange. And there's a lot of questions. Geologists still aren't sure why that occurred, but it sort of set the baseline. And while that is erupting, um, the river is fighting it the whole time, right? So there's this clash between the water and, uh, and the lava, but still that river persisted through all that activity. And then 15,000 years ago, um, I'm sure some of your uh, listeners are familiar with the Younger Dryas uh, floods and uh, the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis and all that kind of stuff. And so what happened 15,000 years ago was we had uh, those... Great Ice Age ice shelves up in Canada. And uh, the theory that makes the most sense to me is that meteorites impacted that ice shelf and created a biblical flood of epic proportions. Uh, The reports that I've seen say that uh, the amount of water flowing down across eastern Washington and then uh, out through the Columbia River Gorge was greater than 10 times the flow of all rivers on Earth combined. We're talking about floods that are uh, easily uh, 300 to 600 feet deep, and they're traveling at uh, 60 to 80 miles an hour. They completely inundate all of eastern Washington, and they get trapped in an area called the Wallula Gap. And The Wallula Gap is sort of the... Uh, beginning of the Columbia River Gorge. And then that water, uh, since it was constrained, shot down the gorge like a jet and completely scoured the entire surface. And so uh, what we have are these astonishing rock formations, these very dramatic mountains, cliff sides and things of that nature. Um, And so during that Younger Dryas event, um, it was uh, an absolute... Cataclysm for the Earth. Um, they say that ninety percent of the megafauna in North America went extinct during that time frame, and you can imagine these floods—they're um, scouring through here at this incredible rate. And um, this event only lasts for a few weeks, so in a geologic wink of an eye, uh, the entire landscape was transformed. And um, so we have had all of these crazy. Uh, paranormal reports and and strange occurrences happening here, the best theory that I can come up with is that um, because we had these traumas, twin trauma of fire and water here in the gorge, the boundaries between worlds have been worn thin. You know, I'm sure you've heard of, you know, some of these um, esoteric thought Uh, systems that say, you know, what happens above happens below. And so, things that are manifesting in the physical realm are also manifesting on the etheric realm and the astral realm and the mental realm and the spiritual realm. And so, you can't have these kinds of epic earth-changing events occur in one realm and not rippling up and down the entire scale on either, uh, on both sides of that. And so, what I think has happened here is that we have got this uh, traumatized landscape, and um, you know, and so things easily pass back and forth. You know, uh, it's either things from the etheric realm or astral realm or different dimensions or whatever. Again, I'm not an expert in that, but this is my theory. Are it's easier for them to pass through here into our world. On the flip side, it's easier for people to accidentally slip into those other realms themselves. And so I can't say for sure that people are having physical experiences in the world that we know, or if they're having etheric experiences in a realm that looks like ours, but they've um, inadvertently slipped slipped through the gap. So phenomenal area. And um, just to give you some highlights on some of the crazy things that go on here. So uh, the very first uh, UFO sighting uh um, popularized UFO sighting was that Arnold sighting uh and it was a, a private aircraft that was flying near Mount Rainier which is about uh, 50 miles north of here and he saw a number of objects back in I think it's 1947 and um they flew to Mount Adams which is uh, one of the areas that we've seen this so this was the very first UFO sighting uh in modern Uh, times here in America. And that happened right in our backyard. And the UFOs flew from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams and then disappeared on them. And so that sort of kicked off the UFO experience here in the United States. And since then, um, Mount Adams is a well-known UFO hotspot. And so we've got, uh, we've had tons of reports in the store of people talking about seeing uh, objects flying over that. Um, There are some stories about a physical Hanger door that opens uh, on Mount Adams, and people have seen things flying in and out of there. We have also had people come into the store and tell us that they've seen um, like portals open in the air next to the mountain. Um, again, not sure what's going on with that. There is a place uh, about uh, maybe 25 minutes north of the store called the Esetti Ranch. And he said he stands for Enlightened Communication with Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And there's a gentleman up there, Jim, who has for decades been um, apparently communicating with ETs. Uh, And I, I haven't I don't have a ton of detail on what he does there, but I do know that people come from all around the world to go to Jim's ranch and sit in the lawn chair and watch UFOs fly around Mount Adams all night. Uh, people come skeptics and they leave believers. And so there's a really long uh, standing tradition of um, strange things in the sky. In fact, last February, we got uh, some photographs of something just a few miles from the store hovering over one of the mountains nearby. And so uh, UFOs, a big part of what's going on out here. Um, But that story is a little bit complicated because um, about 80 miles uh, east of us, Is the Hanford Nuclear Site. So, Hanford is the place where uh, the very first plutonium for the first nuclear weapons was um, smelted. And so, uh, when they started the Manhattan Project, there's obviously Los Alamos where they uh, designed the bomb, but it was at Hanford in eastern Washington where they actually created the plutonium that was used in the first uh, test and then uh, on the bomb that was dropped in Nagasaki. And then after uh, World War II was over and the Cold War ramped up, they uh, produced enough plutonium at Hanford uh, to create 60,000 nuclear weapons. And so this is one of the Department of Energy's um, biggest and most important uh, research sites, uh, and you know, they had um, three or four Nike missile uh, surface-to-air uh, defense stations located on this place. This place is massive. It's, oh I think it's at least half the size of um, Delaware. So it is an enormous tract of land. But one of the things that they had out there, um, they. Uh, had a large animal testing program, and they could house a thousand large animals there at the time. you know when um, the whole atomic frontier was first breached, no one had any idea of how radiation impacted creatures or livestock or people and there's even some some stories about how um, there was uh, they re- intentionally released um, radioactive isotopes uh, in the air above the local communities, and they secretly monitored people's health. Um, the important thing is that this is an incredibly important black site. And um, the things that they did there, I don't think we're ever going to know fully. They were definitely testing on animals, but we've had a number of folks come into the store and tell us about, um, like, uh, helicopters that make no sound flying through the canyons and the deserts uh, nearby, and so um, the whole Hanford uh, nuclear component uh, also adds some uh, really unusual flavor to what's going on out here. Um, of course, we've had Sasquatch sightings, and in uh, so we're in my stores in Clicquot County, my house is in Skamania County. Um, this is you're probably talking about. Um, 4,000 square miles of land and the den- pop- population density is about 10 people per square mile. So it's a pretty rural area. But uh, Scamania County, where my house is, um, there are actually laws on the book that make it illegal to hunt Bigfoot. Like this is a very serious uh, endeavor and you will get fined and go to jail if you shoot and kill a Bigfoot. And it's, it's on the books. Um, and so we have had Tons of folks come into the store and talk about um, Sasquatch sightings, Sasquatch experiences. You know, insurance salesmen in suits come in. And uh, I was driving down the road and there was on the side of it. I've had law enforcement officers tell me their stories. Apparently, you've had some encounters out there when you were visiting in the short time that you were here. Uh, So uh, UFOs, Bigfoot. There's, of course, a number of different types of ghost stories that we hear. Um, we have a lot of orbs, uh, glowing orbs, uh, that are reported. And the thing that really kind of caught my attention, the thing that was most unusual, was we have been receiving reports of um, a thing we call the Clickitat ape cat. And so this is an enormous black panther like creature. Uh, all uh, we've, In the store, we've probably received close to 60 reports about this thing and including, um, I guess, the law enforcement officers have seen this. Reports go back 30 years, um, and all the reports describe an extremely muscular, very large, black panther-like creature with a long black tail. Now, of course, we have cougars out here, um, but cougars are never supposed to be black. We've talked to a lot of wildlife uh, experts, and they all say that Cougars are either tan or red. They, they, in America, they're not black. And the only large black cat in North America is a jaguar, uh, but their range is a thousand miles south of here. But yet we have all these reports. Now, um, so of those 60 reports, about half of them uh, say that the creature is extremely large. So four to five feet tall at the shoulder. And uh, that is bigger than a tiger, which is the largest uh, cat known to man and so um, that's a very curious thing uh this enormous size and again reported by reputable folks and then a handful of the reports i would say five or six of them describe uh the creature as having a very flattened face that looks like um uh, an ape or a monkey uh, intelligent ape like eyes other primate features and um that one is uh, you know i um it's hard for me to understand what's going on with it We have a policy at the store that we believe the witness. We don't try to insert our thoughts about what we think they might be seeing. Uh, Our goal is to take in the data and get a sense of what they believe they've actually experienced. It's not our job to question them about their sanity. It's not our job to make fun of them. Our job is to take the facts, no matter how... um, even if we can't make sense of them ourselves with what we understand and look for patterns and try to understand what's going on here. And so um, I will be going along and I'll convince myself, oh, you know, it's probably just a big black cougar. And then I'll get another report. Uh, we got one from a bunch of wildland fire, uh, forest firefighters. He said, yeah, we were out there and um, we saw this thing and we had to spend three nights in this spot and we were wondering what we were going to do about it. Now fortunately, there have been no hostile encounters with the quick attack ape cat in the thirty years uh that people have been seeing it um, but to me it's one of the most fun mysteries uh, that i've uh, been and had the privilege of being involved with um you know it's uh, I think the thing that um is really uh, oh, two things have have come up for me one is The human connection that you make with somebody who has had an extraordinary experience and someone finally believes them and treats them like an adult and respects them, like those connection moments have been amazing and uh, some of the most joyful and rewarding parts of this whole project. And the other part is, you know, it's a honest to goodness Scooby-Doo mystery, like what the heck is going on here? And to sort of be a ground zero, and you saw my uh, 4x4, you know, it's all tricked out with spotlights and cameras and all the stuff you'd need. And uh, so, you know, my kids and I, we go out and uh, when we get a hot lead, we'll go out and investigate it. And uh, the local community has a lot of fun with it. And so, yeah, that's kind of a a pretty long-winded summary of uh, some of the things that are going on out in the Columbia River Gorge.
2: But there's so much, like, like, man, that was, a like, I, I like when you were saying, like, it kind of reminded me in the beginning when you were talking about, like, uh, the comet or maybe asteroid or something that hit right there. And you were saying, like, portal wish. It kind of reminded me, like, gateway, you know, like how you're saying people could slip in to either or. But all these people that are giving you these, I thought it was interesting, that are giving reports, whether verbal or written down. I think it becomes for me like I always try to break things down like as logical as possible, you know, like it be like it could be this. But one thing I do know is that you start seeing a trend. You're like, well, this guy doesn't know this guy and this guy saw the same thing, <laughs> you know, and they were not even together. They didn't even know. And leaving that information, I think, is important, like collecting the data so you can actually have a trail of, look, this guy doesn't know anybody else in this in this town. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? He saw this on his own. This is like two months later. That's when I start getting really intrigued. Where I'm like, well, there's no way like 60, 70, 100, and the more and more people come, can all be hallucinating, yeah. like, you know what I mean, yeah. or or be off their rocker. It starts to become like, if it's one dude, you could be like, mm, maybe, maybe, yeah, I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you saw something else or whatever. But like, I'm with you, just listening to people and hearing what they saw. I think that's powerful, and then it makes more people want to come forward because there's a lot of people that see stuff whether, mm-hmm. and they don't want to look weird. They don't want to be like, ah, oh, someone's going to say something to me, make fun of me, or I'll just keep it to myself. And then we're never going to solve these mysteries. If, if people don't you
0: know, give us that information. It's so funny uh, that you mentioned that. Um, you know, we recently got a, uh, interesting UFO picture, you know, and from the, I mean, it was a small thing, uh, you know, and, and taken from, you know, Probably 11 miles away. So, not a ton of detail in it. But, you know, uh, so I did some image enhancements and analysis, and I put it up on the local Facebook pages. And the thing that was most interesting to me was a ton of people would simply tag a friend and not say anything. And um, those are folks that are like, you remember when I told you I saw this thing? well, check it out. Like I wasn't crazy. Right. And so we probably had at least 30 or 40 folks do that exact thing. Tag a friend and say nothing. And, and a few of the folks was like, I told you I saw it. (laughs) So, um, but yeah. And, and I think that's the other thing that is really interesting to me is, um, you know, Like back in the 1800s, there was this huge citizen scientist movement going on. A lot of it was done by, you know, pastors and stuff like that. And they would go out and they would look at fossils or geology, and they were sort of the foundation of this emerging science. And we think of, like, oh, yeah, well, geology, we know that. We've got it down pretty well. We understand stratification and we understand plate tectonics and all these. Really complicated things. Even ice ages were something that was unknown, um, you know, in the early 1800s, 1700s, stuff like that. And it was through these citizens who had spare time and a little bit of extra resources, and they would go out and they would take these recordings. They would, you know, jot this stuff down. And I think that the new frontier is really sort of this paranormal, metaphysical thing. Um, You look at the Oldest human records of thought: cave paintings for 40,000 years old. You're talking about things like Lascaux, France, right? And so, from these are the the very first indications we have that humans are recording their thoughts. The, The very first indications that any being on Earth was recording their thoughts. And in these cave paintings, we see creatures that are impossible by normal biological standards. You know, they're therianthropes, uh, creatures that are human-animal hybrids. And, And so this notion that, oh, you're crazy, no, like this is an integral part of the human experience and has been since we have been thinking creatures. And if you look at every civilization on every continent where people lived, and in every era of time, you see impossible creatures. Um, You know, the Egyptians, there's a whole pantheon of, you know, cat headed people or, you know, bird headed people. Uh, Even angels in biblical times are human bird hybrids. Uh, In those caves, they were, there's a whole um, tradition of a bison man. And this is a tradition that lasts 15,000 years. Like 15,000 years is like eight times longer than Christianity has been around. And there's this tradition of people um, recording these experiences. Now, where these experiences are coming from or what they mean or how they, uh, these impossible things get into our world. That's a whole set of questions that I don't have answers for, but I do know that this is a real part of the human experience and it always has been. And for someone to fold their arms and say, ah, I know better. Um, it's to me like an adolescent, know-it-all teenager coming in and trying to say, "Well, pff, you know, pharaohs—you know, like the smartest people in every culture, whether it be pharaohs or shaman or whoever it was—they're all morons." And you know, science has been around for three, four hundred years. We know what we're talking about. It's just ridiculous that uh, to have that kind of arrogance. I think a much wiser and more mature approach is. Uh, There are many things we understand and science is an excellent tool for helping us understand the physical world. Um, But there are also many things that we don't know. You know, you look at like a guy like Ben Franklin, he must have seemed like a total whack job when he's out uh, during a lightning storm flying a kite. Um, But it's because of that whack job that we now understand how electricity works and um Things like the internet and everything that we enjoy from a, a electrified world c- came from a guy who everyone must have thought was insane because it was a natural phenomenon that wasn't understood. And so that's kind of like um, I am uh, kind of proud to be in the company of folks like you guys who are taking this seriously. And yeah, we don't have the answers, and we may get some theories wrong. You know, we may be way off base but we're not going to dismiss the data um, just because it doesn't fit into a model that a bunch of arrogant teenagers came up with essentially.
3: Right. I, I got a couple of things for you. Uh, one of them, I really like what you said about ancient man. Um, I really hate the connotations that they were idiots because yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's applicable at all because if anything, my personal opinion is, I think technology was insane in the past, and I think in some places it definitely was. Uh, it's been proven. So I, I think that that for sure. Also, what is it? What is difference between technology, right? Because at the end of the day, it's what the people of that time understood what the technology was. It doesn't mean that it, ours is just different. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it was, there's, you know, ours is greater than theirs. They just had a different concept the way that they used it. And it doesn't mean they were any dumber, right? Like you said, you were talking about Pharaohs. They're,
0: they weren't stupid. Yeah. These people These are were some very the knowledgeable. The most, you know, the way I kind of look at it is like in every society, there's like, even now, you know, with this whole, um, the military revealing that, uh, they are um, going to be taking UFOs seriously, right? And uh, so NASA's best, smartest people are working on that. The, the best astrophysicists are trying to answer these questions. We are seeing things that seem to define the laws of physics as we know them. We better understand them because, by the way, they're able to turn off our nuclear sites. Um, and then you look at the folks at the Department of Energy, and those guys um, are literally exploring pocket dimensions, multiverses, all kinds of crazy stuff like that. So if you look at society, you've got these super elites and, you know, in hunter-gatherer situations, it's the shaman in Egypt, it's the, the pharaohs in, you know, Samaria, it's the kings, you know, in, in South America, it's the Aztec leaders, like the highest, smartest, best and brightest of the cultures are taking this stuff very seriously. Then there's a stratum, probably pretty thin underneath that, of a bunch of guys who think they're really smart or with their arms folded calling everyone idiots. And then there's a ton of people like me who are sort of at the bottom and we're not the smartest people in the world, but man, we know that um, there's more to the world than just the physical apparatus that we see. Like there, we've had enough ex- personal experiences and our minds are open enough to say, you know what? There may be more going on here, we don't understand it. And so it's really that loudmouth, thin stratification of people who think they're really smart, uh, who are the, but are not the smartest, um, who are the ones that are, you know, casting dispersions on folks for. And
2: I wouldn't say just smartness either. It's like critical thinking, yeah. right? We talk about that a lot on this show. I think like. Even, like, at the institution level at times, people kind of get caught up in that, too. Like, they're like, well, you know, they said there could never be a UFO or there could never be. So they kind of, like, block it out because they think it's impossible. And I think that really critical thinking is, like, like we were saying, like, hey, man, this is a lot of evidence, Mm -hmm. man. 10 people, 20 people, 30, 100 people, all walks of life. Like you were saying, hey, a a police officer, a firefighter, the kid down the street, the mom, the soccer mom that's like, it's nobody that is in irrelevance. Like, if it was all like, hey, we're all stoners, man, or (laughs) we all drink, like, I could understand people pushing them aside, right? I get it a little bit because I've said some crazy stuff, you know, smoking stuff. (laughs) But it's true that when you get all that, that, uh, people involved that like mothers and the firefighters now you know well this dad is real yeah. and i think that's also the problem is academia sometimes uh kind of forces us not to critically think they say hey this is you know white is white black is black there is no gray area and everything so they really lay it on thinking i think that is also some of the problem and things are dug up because when we talk about ufos we uh, me and i'll speak for joe a little bit too we both kind of have that Understanding of thoughts that we've discovered that there's mechanical UFOs and then there's these, you know, the orbs and the uh, more we think like being type Mm -hmm. of like UFOs.
0: Yeah, there's so much wide open space. And what happens in academia? I mean, science as a tool for understanding the world is very effective. But you put it in the hands of a bunch of folks whose careers are Based on them being right, you know, and their funding is is tied to that, and their reputations are tied to that, and it's a social situation, so you get these dogmatic thoughts, you know. Um, so I mentioned these these great floods out here, um, the greatest floods literally in the history of mankind, you know, fifteen thousand years ago. There's anatomically modern humans running around all over the place, like it is a hundred percent. People just like you and I, just as smart as you and I, are living through this event. And there was a guy in the 1920s named Jay Harlan Bretz. And he sort of was the first to go out and do the field studies in eastern Washington Scablands, and the Columbia River Gorge. And he looked at these features and said, you know what? The only way you can get, you know, like these potholes or these um, fossil waterfalls at this scale, is by a gigantic flood. There's no other way that this can occur, other than an enormous amount of water. There are things like they call them glacial erratics, and so basically, a rock will get caught into an iceberg in this flood, like, and then it uh, floats down uh, through the flooding, and then it gets stranded, you know, like on a high hill. And so we have boulders from Canada in Washington state that are 500 feet up on a hillside. The only way they can get there is if the water level was that high, high enough to float an iceberg there, drop it off the ice, the waters go away, the iceberg melts, the rock drops in, in place. So, Brett's is out there in the 1920s and he's doing all these studies and he's like, wow, I've got these incredibly detailed, intricate maps. I've got a whole team of you know undergrads and we are coming to this conclusion that this is really the only thing that could happen well geology has got uh, has always had this um, sort of philosophy of gradualism so things uh, processes that we can observe today are what created everything and so if you see like a giant valley it wasn't a big flood that created it it was gradual erosion right and so like that's sort of the mindset it's the dogma of Geologists at the time, and so he went and presented his findings to the American Geological Society, and they laughed at him. they uh, humiliated him, they messed up his career, they screwed up his funding, they maligned him in public and in writing. it was just a total character assassination, and they they wouldn't even consider his evidence and their big problem was, well, you don't have a source for the water. And so, since you don't have a source of water, none of your findings can be true. And he's like, well, it doesn't matter that I don't have a source of water. The evidence is here. Like, the phenomena exists. And just because I don't have the answer to that question doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Well, it was this horrible character assassination of this poor J. Harlan Bratz. So, he went on and started studying some other things. And eventually, uh, there was a a guy that discovered... uh, uh, Lake Missoula it was like this giant ice age lake. And there was a way that it, this ice dam could have broken and drained and it could have been a source of the water. So he finally got people to come out and look at this from the geological society. These people who are ridiculing him, no experience, they hadn't even looked at it in person. Well, they get out there and like, oh my gosh, you're right. The only way we can do this, the only way this could be created is through these giant floods. And um, in the 1980s, when Jay Harlan Bretz is 80 years old, um, he is awarded the Penrose Medal. And this is the American Geological Society's highest award. And so, uh, and he said to his son, you know, <laughs> this is a wonderful accolade, and I'm glad to have finally been vindicated, but um, all my enemies are dead. Like all the people I could gloat over have passed away. And really, the only way that science advances is when those powerful authority figures move on, right? And so, science is actually not the cutting edge. All science begins with field observation. And it begins with field observation from regular people, right? It's not like scientists are going to go investigate something that there's no smoke, right? And so it's only through everyday people having unusual experiences that even raises the interest of a scientist. And then once the scientific process gets started, it is a long and arduous process to get peer-reviewed and uh, you know have replicating studies and all those kind of things like that. So science is never at the forefront of new knowledge, science is always like a trailing indicator and to dismiss uh, a phenomenon out of hand, because it's not a part of the current scientific dogma is shows a profound misunderstanding of how science actually is supposed to work. Um, anyway, I forgot what you're saying, but it seemed like it was yeah. relevant.
3: James to that point. So you're talking about this, uh, basically nuclear site but there's a lot of blacklisted testing going on there you said animal testing let me try to put a few dots together here if possible do you think that maybe they built that site because of the area that it's in because here's my opinion i i think behind the scenes there are scientists and there are people that are working on a lot of these uh ideas that we're talking about here but they're just not telling the rest of us so i'm wondering if there's if that particular site there are some testing going on that has to do with these portals that has to do with the veil being thin in the area Uh, maybe you know the click attack ape cat you were talking about animal testing is is that something that was a byproduct of that maybe possibly or or maybe they know about this click attack ape cat or several other cryptids in the area, too.
0: You know, um, I think it's really insightful that you bring that up. So um, yeah, so um, I'm going to purchase them a couple different ways. So I think you're absolutely right that um, the Hanford site was selected because it was uh, it was a couple of things. One, it was very remote, right? Uh, number two, it had the Columbia River there. And, and so they were, they had some dams on the river already. And so when I talk about like the energy of the Columbia river flowing, it can sound like a very woo woo kind of a concept, but there are 14 dams on the Columbia river and it, uh, generates those dams generate enough electricity to power the city of Seattle seven times over. So literally the energy that is flowing through the Columbia river, when it is harnessed turns into Energy that we understand and utilize and can change around, right? And so, like it is literally true to say that the energy flow of the Columbia River ushered in the nuclear era, right? A hundred percent because they were taking two things from the river. They were taking the hydroelectric power and they were taking the water for cooling. So, let's rewind. I'm going to long wind this one for you. So... (laughs) Buckle in. So uh, we're in World War II. The Nazis are, we learned they're developing, they're experimenting with nuclear power. At that time, nobody really knows what nuclear power can do, right? Uh, They believe that it can create bombs. But you have to remember the Nazis at that time are also very interested in selective breeding programs. They're creating super soldiers, they're creating uh, hybrid animals. They literally trained and deployed 200,000 dogs to fight alongside German soldiers during World War II. And in fact, there is an extinct Ice Age creature called the aurochs, which they retrobred bison and bulls and all these kind of things. It's a hyper aggressive, like bull like creature. It's enormous. And the Nazis were successful in bringing this thing back from extinction and they populated a forest in Europe with them. And so Everyone knows that the allies are worried about the Nazis getting the bomb. What is less well known is that the Nazis are also trying to uh, do eugenics and breeding programs and creating super soldiers and super animals and all these kind of crazy things. And so, when they started the Manhattan Project, Los Alamos, those guys are engineering the bomb. Hanford, let's, uh, let's refine the plutonium. But from day one, they had an animal testing program there like it was a part of the design from the beginning and the guy that they chose to run that testing program was a guy named Dr. Donaldson and he was located at the University of Washington up near Seattle and Dr. Donaldson's only academic claim to fame was that he had created a thing called the Donaldson super trout this is a trout a fish that is 8 times stronger than a normal trout It reproduces faster. It's more survivable. It can swim in saltwater and freshwater. It's still today a viable fish species that they stock fisheries with. So the guy that they picked to run the animal testing program at Hanford at the dawn of the atomic frontier is a guy whose whole program was about creating super animals. Right. So, um, we go through the war. They build the bomb, um, and they're testing to see like what effects radiation has on livestock. And uh, uh, the bombs get dropped in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The war ends, and they start to like sort of like spin Hanford down. It was complete black site. Like um, they had like forty thousand people come and build Hanford, and they were doing things like they would bring in like uh, trains that had horses in them. And with false floors that had like the components for the the nuclear um, uh, refinement apparatus, it was that level of secrecy. And no one who was working at Hanford you know, building the site. Um, can you still hear me? Um, yeah. Uh, the folks that, uh, that who were building it didn't even know what they were building. Like it was a complete top secret thing. Well, we win the war. They announced that Hanford was a part of that and that we had helped create the super weapon there. Then the cold war starts and Russia is starts to soak up all of these German scientists. Right. And so, uh, that's when America was like, Oh crap. And so they started operation famously operation paperclip. Where we started bringing in Nazi scientists into our fold. Right. And so these guys, these Nazi scientists are a huge part of our top secret weapons programs, you know, and famously, you know, NASA's the head of NASA, um, was a Nazi. Um, but here in the States, uh, you know, like these, there were a number of Nazi doctors who had been experimenting in humans uh, during the war, children, and all kinds of stuff. And they're now intimately involved in our testing programs. And you, you've you heard of probably the MK Ultra program. Well, I'm forgetting, maybe it was Bohr? Yeah, Neil Bohr, I think maybe his name was. So, he's the guy who was behind the MK Ultra program, which they're you know dosing um, American citizens with hallucinogens and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And you know no, no, no consent, right? So, as we go through the Cold War, out there at Hanford, they're doing all kinds of crazy things, and their animal testing program is growing and growing and growing. We have stories even today about Men in Black going out, uh, or excuse me, I shouldn't say that. We have stories today of uh, cattle mutilations here in um, in the area, but quite literally. Um, so I started diving into this because, like, man, this cat thing is kind of weird. Uh, maybe Hanford had something to do with it, and so I, you know, read some. Um, Doctoral theses and started digging around and looking at what was going on and the types of programs that they had, come to find out that um, the the doctor Donaldson had moved on to the studies in the South Pacific. So you're probably familiar with like Bikini Atoll and uh, like the the horrific tragedy of the Castle Bravo test, which was this nuclear explosion that was way larger yield than they had expected it to be, and it killed some. Uh, Japanese uh, fishermen and created this ecological disaster. So he's, he had moved on from Hanford during the Cold War uh, to the South Pacific and was a part of all those crazy nuclear tests going on down there, which generated the legend of Godzilla and all that kind of stuff. Back in Washington State at Hanford, there's a a guy they put in charge of the animal testing program, and his name is uh, Bill Bear. And I was able to uncover uh, three different oral histories from Bill. And Bill has died uh, probably four or five years ago. And he describes some of the things that they were doing there. And uh, in one of these, uh, actually in three of these different interviews, he talks about how they were experimenting on apex predators uh, with radiation and how those creatures escaped and uh, they were unable to capture them all. So the story that he tells is about, they brought in 30 alligators that they wanted to test. And I'll get to why they may have been testing alligators in a minute. And so they had these 30 alligators. There's even some pictures of them showing the device that they used to irradiate these apex predators with. Um, Then one night, six of the alligators outsmarted the scientists and escaped into the Columbia river. And so now they've got these irradiated apex predators swimming around. So there are, they did a press release um, because one had escaped uh, maybe a year earlier and it wound up like caught by our fisherman and it was in a, like an outdoor store taxidermy thing. And so the Department of Energy swooped in there because the thing was still radioactive and they confiscated it. And like, oh, we can't have a fisherman finding the alligators again. So there's, you know, historical records that they put out a press release that said alligators had escaped into the Columbia River. They're kind of vague on the details of what the experiments were and that they were actually irradiated, uh, but they recommend citizens not go near them. So from July to January, they're sending out teams daily to hunt down these irradiated apex predators and they wind up capturing only four of them. And they're like, well, (laughs) they're probably going to die during the winter. So let's kind of call it off. And so there are literally two irradiated alligators swimming around in the Columbia river. Um, and just so you know, like Hanford has, uh, a 90 mile river coastline um, with uh, the Columbia River. So it's kind of a, a big deal. Like, that's a really hard thing to control. And now you've got these, um, you know, alligators swimming around out there. Well, this guy, Bill Bear, in these interviews, he's like, yeah, well, back in the 80s, uh, and so remember, these experiments are happening like in the 60s. Um, I got a call from some fish and wildlife guy across the river. He asked me if I knew anything about alligators in the Columbia. I kind of told him no one hung up and he laughs about it. Like, it's like, what are you doing, man? Like, so he's completely denying it, but you know, he's the whole, his job is over and he's, you know, just recalling his experiences. Now the thing about Bill bear is that he was a world war two hero. Uh, he fought in Europe and then he got trained in, uh, amphibious warfare and then he was sent to the South Pacific and, um, he wound up, he was going to be a part of the Japanese invasion. And then the bombs uh, ended the war and he didn't have to go. And he very clearly states that he think it was the right and moral thing for us to do to drop those bombs. Because in his mind, there would have been enormous casualties on both sides, greater than what had happened with the bombs. And so in his cold warrior mind frame, he believes that, you know, what we did was the correct activity, but it shows you like in, during the cold war, Like the world was at stake and folks were willing to do anything. Um, And they were very, very creative. There was a thing called project headgear. And the idea was, let's see if we can turn sharks into guided torpedoes. So they rigged up um, sharks with these headsets that had, you know, uh, could deliver shocks remote control wise. And the idea was that they were going to put this headgear on the shark and then stuff this living shark with explosives and then control the shark towards an enemy vessel and then detonate the shark and blow up the ship. Well, they spent, I think it was eight years and $10 million on this project headgear. And at the end of it, their assessment was this was a bad idea and it would never work. So like, but what it's showing you is that they were willing to do really crazy stuff. Now, a program that was successful, um, was the dolphin program. And so right now, a quarter of the U S nuclear stockpile is guarded by dolphins and they've been guarding, um, our most secure, most sensitive sites for more than uh, since the 1950s, right? That's when this, um, whole dolphin training program, and they have sea lions and a bunch of other creatures too. But the reason why they use dolphins is so, so many of our nuclear sites are on waterways. Uh, they, um, Particularly here in Washington State, we've got the Banger sub base. And um, if Washington State were its own country, it would be the third largest nuclear power in the world because we have all of the nuclear subs are based here in Washington State. And their biggest concern is sonar can't tell the difference between a scuba diver who's going in to infiltrate or sabotage or surveil your nuclear site and a sea lion or some big fish, right? So, like, you can't tell the difference when you're looking at a scope. You need something with intelligence and who's uh, that's their natural habitat. And so, they rig dolphins with this sort of apparatus that goes on their snout. It's got like a barb on it. And what those dolphins will do is they will swim up to that diver because they can detect them and they'll jab that barb into the, the diver and a balloon will inflate. It'll take the diver to the surface and then they'll go scoop them up and uh, interrogate them uh, and get all the intelligence. So this kind of stuff has been going on uh, for, for decades and it's an integral part of our nuclear defense strategy. I had mentioned that on Hanford they had four Nike missile launch sites. And just so you get a sense, a Nike missile was a nuclear-tipped surface-to-air missile, and the idea was if Russian bombers are flying over the United States, you, uh, missile technology wasn't accurate enough to hit a single bomber. So they would send up these Nike missiles. It would do an area-of-effect explosion and blow the bombers out of the sky. And the fact that you were detonating nuclear weapons over civilian populations was considered worth the risk because it was better than having Soviet bombers take out our entire plutonium refinement system, right? Like strategically, you take the hit on the civilians with the nuclear fallout from your surface to air missiles and you uh, protect the, the critical defense assets. Every one of those Nike missile launch sites was guarded by dogs. And the The U.S. military considered a dog to be 10 times more effective a sentry than a human being. So this is a long way to get to the point of, well, why the heck do we have big black cats in Washington State? So uh, Hanford's got 90 miles of river coastline. How in the heck are you going to defend 90 miles of river coastline? Like it's a really, really challenging thing to do. Um, You can't bring in dolphins because they're a saltwater creature. And so you might try alligators, right? Or you might go for the world's singularly most effective riverine hunter, and that is a jaguar. So uh, you can look it up on YouTube. There's some pretty amazing videos. Jaguars can hold their breath for 15 minutes. They can eat underwater. They can kill cayman alligators with a single bite to the back of the skull. They have night vision that is six times better than a human being. And they always, always, always instinctively drag their prey to shore. So if you're a cold warrior and you're looking for a solution of how am I going to guard our most sensitive and important nuclear site, you might just try training jaguars, right? And we know that they're irradiating um, these apex predators. So, um, you know, Donaldson, uh, he was in a like a debate about radiation in the Seattle times in June of 1970. And he said, you know, radiation at high levels obviously is a problem, but low doses of radiation actually make creatures stronger and more survivable. It's sort of like, you know, stressing a system like you do with like a, uh, uh, a booster shot or you know when you get your flu shot same kind of thing if you stress an animal with low doses of radiation then um they actually wind up becoming stronger and their offspring become stronger like they're just more capable and um so jaguars uh most pound for pound most powerful of the big cats but notoriously the hardest to train now the easiest to train of the big cats are lions you know you've seen every circus you've seen has got a lion in it and um it turns out that lions and jaguars can breed, uh, cross breed very effectively. Up in Canada, there is a uh, like one of those big cat sanctuaries, and there was a lion and a jaguar living in the same pen, and they loved each other very much, and they wound up having uh, two offspring. One of them was a um, jaguar-looking lion, and the other one was a black lion. This is an enormous creature um, that has, you know, it's not quite. Five feet tall at the shoulder, but it's you know a lion-sized black jaguar-looking cat. And so the you know I'm I'm grasping at straws. I'm trying to figure out like how in the heck? Why do we have these uh, enormous black cats roaming around Clickitat County that seem to have some type of facial mutations? They seem to be hyper intelligent. Um, You know how how did this happen? And so it's quite possible uh, that the Department of Energy had a secret uh, jaguar sentinel program that they were working on at Hanford. Uh, just like the alligators, uh, those creatures escaped captivity by outsmarting the scientists. Just like the alligators, they were unable to capture them all. And um, it's quite likely that breeding pairs escaped. Uh, we have had reports um uh, two years ago, someone saw one of these big black cats with a, a kit next to it uh, in their driveway. And so, um, the the geology or the climate of the gorge is really interesting. So, you've got the the gorge is sort of running east to west, and then the Columbia uh, the Cascade Mountains are north to south. And the Cascade Mountains form a rain shadow, so anything to the west is rainforest like my house is literally the rainforest we see over 100 inches of rain a year and in the east is high plains desert and so it sees less than 10 inches of rain a year and so we've got this like dramatic change of climate this transition zone that happens right there at the crest of the columbia river and the hanford nuclear site is over there in the desert side and if you're a big cat you're not going to go north east or south, deeper into the desert, you're going to head west where there's available prey and cover and better habitat and everything else. So your question was, um, do I think that the nuclear site had anything to do with animal testing? My answer is absolutely yes. There's 100%. They were absolutely testing on animals. There's historical documentation, 100% up and down. Uh, Were they testing apex predators? Yes. Again, 100% historical documentation. We even have pictures of the devices they were using to irradiate alligators. And so is it plausible that they were experimenting on uh, big cats? Very likely. Um, We know that they were doing crazy things like Project Headgear, where they're spending millions of dollars only to determine it was a bad plan. Same thing might have happened with these cats. We don't know. But that, to me, is like one of the – like if you're looking at a rational, okay, why do we have big cats here why now? What's the story? That is seems to be like a pretty plausible explanation. But there are some other facts that um, suggest that there might be other explanations as well.
2: Well, also, uh, what you made me think about is since, you know, they known probably for a while that it's known like, you know, lions and jaguars are compatible with making babies. Right. And then technology gets better and you get things like CRISPR and gene splicing And then when you figure that out and then you start trying to mesh it with other things, because when you said about the people that saw the big cat with the flat face, it starts making me think, okay, we've seen that we can hybrid these two together. How many of them have done that? Or there was also maybe all these Jaguars, Lions, and hybrids that are still left over. And then, you know, the government wants to get rid of it. And some guy's like, you know what? I got an idea. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) Hey, Sean,
3: to piggyback, to Piggyback on you, Sean, too. I, I got a good friend of mine, actually, a good friend of both of ours. Uh, he's a uh biologist, and but he's big into cryptids, So he it's it's a great mix because he's able to give you a very scientific valuation, but then also say, Yeah, but all this stuff exists over here. So uh one of the things he talked about, because I told him about the click of that ape cat, he never heard about that, and he's very interested now. But he did know in that area the uh Panthera atrox, which is the uh extinct uh cave lions were in that area and they have that flat face and he was wondering if somehow it was derivative off one of those because he says they come up five feet at the shoulder he said they were huge and they lived in caves in that area so he was wondering if and here i'm going crazy with this you were talking about gene splicing sean well what if they're taking the jaguar and gene splicing it with some sort of genome from that and that's how you're getting these like giant black flat-faced looking monkey-faced versions. But just to to throw that out there, because he told me that that did at one point exist there, and he said he wonders if even maybe there's some left that are still in those caves deep in the mountains as well, because we know there's so much... Going on back there, that you know, like you said, Sasquatch and and all kind of other cryptids are going on back there. It could be something as simple as that, and then the government's like you said,
0: Sean, eh, let's tinker with that a little bit. <laughs> let's see what's, let's see what we can do with this. You know, the Department of Energy has a completely different uh, top secret classification system than the U.S. military, and it's very compartmentalized. And even if you have the highest level clearance if you're not working on the project you're not going to be told about it in fact the US government has forgotten how to make certain components of nuclear weapons because either the people retired or died who were working on that and no one else the knowledge is never transferred so if there was a program going on at Hanford related to big cats we might never know about it or you know if the handlers got killed and the creatures escaped like we might never know about it um, and so it's' we'll, I don't think we'll ever know but it is really clear that at Hanford, like, you have to understand, like, this was the site for the Department of Energy. Um, like, it was – it's such a vast, desolate space and it has enormous energy inputs from the river hydroelectric plants. It's got this, you know, um, all of these nuclear um, refinement uh, facilities there. It's got this enormous animal testing uh, facility. Um, and they're, they, during the cold war, they did all kinds of crazy things where like they were releasing radiation on the population and not telling them about it. And then like I said, following up with, you know, covert medical studies. And so they were a hundred percent doing weird stuff. And, you know, when you look at like, um, you, you know, stranger things, uh, that happened at a You know, it's a fictional story, but it happened at this Department of Energy site, right, where they're literally what they're doing is they uh, a Department of Energy site has opened a portal into another dimension. Creatures escape from that other dimension and they um, wreak havoc on the countryside. Well, there was a social media manager at the Department of Energy when Stranger Things came out and he put up a post that, "Ah, well, um, the show's fun, but the Department of Energy doesn't do anything with, you know, alternate dimensions, and then the, the secretary of energy popped in and, um, one of the, um, oh, it was a aide to Senator Feinstein popped in and said, you know, actually we do fund studies into alternate realities, hidden dimensions, pocket universes, all these other kind of things. And in the email chain that I saw, <laughs> they said, and, uh, It looks like the show got this part right. The show that is depicting strange creatures coming from other dimensions and escaping into our world, that's what they're saying they got right. And I'm like, geez louise. So the notion that – like we've had people come in and say, yeah, I saw a thing that looked like a portal on the side of the road. And so there are things that are happening out here in the Columbia River Gorge that are like – of the highest strangeness and they are super common relatively speaking to anywhere else in the world. And so when you've got like all of like the billions of dollars that they dumped into Hanford and the hundreds of researchers that work there and the vast open spaces and the no one else allowed in there and access to energy and access to funding and access to animals, like who knows? Like, you know, I mean, you want to get, talk about, Off the wall ideas, what if they opened a portal that opened time and they brought something forward in time? Like that's even on the table. The reason why I say that is, you know, we went out to the petroglyph site there near Horse Thief Lake here in the Columbia River Gorge, and there is a petroglyph of a cat like being uh, with water underneath it. And um, there is, at least in the uh, Great Lakes area, Oh, where you guys live, there is a um, uh, Native American story about a race of panther protector creatures. They call them underwater panthers. And, you know, whenever they uh, Native Americans are talking about underwater creatures, they're referring to things that are living in the spirit realm, altered dimensions, something of that nature. Not the normal, you know, go to work every day kind of physical reality they're familiar with, but some type of... Um, Reality that exists alongside of ours where there can be some, you know, things moving back and forth. These – the race of being were called the Meshepeshu. And um, some of the descriptions say they look like a black panther with the face of a man. And so we've got this – outside of what's going on over at Hanford, there's this uh, notion that um, we have legends that date back thousands of years. We've got petroglyph evidence that there are strange big cats. Out there as well, and you know, earlier in the interview, I had mentioned this East City Ranch that uh, enlightened communication with extraterrestrial intelligence. uh, That's just you know 15 miles south of Mount Adams, and what uh, one of the races they claim to be in contact with out there is a race of um, feline humanoids, and uh, in fact, there's a lion face on their logo. And so, you know, this Hanford story is my rational mind trying to come up with some plausible explanation that is doesn't have to invoke alternate universes or parallel dimensions or anything like that like how can this physically occur in a way that's plausible but i don't i'm not convinced i've got the story right it's interesting and reasonable as it sounds reasonable for weird ass you know department of energy projects um You know, one of the things that I haven't told you is the very first report that I ever got about the clickitat ape cat. There was a guy who was orienteering, uh, you know, maybe four or five miles from the store. And his compass started going weird. And then he saw the cat immediately thereafter sitting across a creek from him. And he got like five minutes of time looking at this thing. And he was the, like I said, my very first story I ever heard about this. And he was adamant the thing had fur that was four to five inches long. It was five feet tall to shoulder. It was enormous and muscular. It had this intelligent ape-like eyes. It said, the best I can describe it, it looks like a cat crossed with a monkey. And since then, we've had many other reports where people say that my cell phone battery and my headlamp battery died simultaneously while I was looking at this thing. And so there's this constellation of clues um, another interesting thing, so I got that report from that guy, and um you know it took him about 40 minutes to work up the courage to tell me what he had seen. And I was so fascinated by it. The next day I told my employees, I said, Hey, you know, we got this really cool report yesterday. I'm not sure what to make of it. One of my employees, she um her eyes got wide and she started shaking. She said, Oh my god, I've seen that thing myself. I was driving down Clicketet Canyon one morning and there's this enormous black cat um walking along the side of the road. It entered a tall patch. Uh, a small patch of tall grass and then it seemed to disappear and so we've had a number of reports where the creature seems to be there present and then it seems to disappear um so it fades in and out of uh our ability to see it um you know we've had reports where people had the sense that they felt like they're in the presence of something unusual or magical or special like you know you see a, a deer or a bear and you have a, oh, I'm seeing an animal response. And we've all had that to some degree, whether well, it's a squirrel or a bird or whatever. But it seems like in many of these reports, people have the clear sensation that they're having a special or unique encounter, right? And so, you know, um, the like the human body is one of the few things uh, or consciousness, whatever it is, that spans both we clearly live in the physical realm, but we also are fluent in um, you know, the spiritual realms. Like it's part of being human is to have this conscious experience. And we have many experiences that aren't tied to a physical apparatus. Like The whole idea of just a thought is a non-physical um, experience, right? And emotions are non-physical. You could say chemicals are involved in the brain, but in essence, your experience is that you're experiencing something that is, doesn't have a physical analog. There's no... No scientist has ever found a combination of chemicals that equals the taste of chocolate or the taste of garlic. Um, And so it's clearly like we straddled the line. And all of science's tools are tools that can only record physical occurrences. It's sort of like if you said, well, here's the color orange, and a scientist showed up and said, well, I've got the best microphone in the world, and we're not picking up anything. So there is no such thing as orange, because my microphone won't pick up your orange. And so I think that um, there's something going on here. And like I said, it's that's what makes this so exciting and, and so much fun, is that we're the citizen scientists who are not going to close down these ideas because... We don't have a physical explanation for them. And we're going to keep our minds open to, it might be something more. It might be something that we, we haven't yet figured out, just like before electricity and Ben Franklin figured it out.
2: Maybe those facilities are borrowing technology, like my friend Joel liked to say, from these fallen angels. <laughs> <laughs>
3: I'm not ruling anything out. You know I'll go all biblical on it. You yeah. know I'll go all biblical on them real quick. You got to it before I did.
2: (laughs) Because it's it's so many elements of it. (laughs) It's
3: so many elements of it. And I do want to say this, uh, back to the petroglyphs, because you took us out there. And, I've Sean, I've seen it. It's wild. It it looks like a cat coming out of the water. And the fact that this particular cat has been seen coming out of the water. Correct me if I'm wrong, James. It's been seen coming out of the water in the area from people. Uh I I'm with you look. I I did early on the the nice scientific thing, but I'm kind of more on board with uh <laughs> this is something in in the spiritual realm uh coming through the veil maybe or trying to replicate it. You could even have that going on as well. So I know I'm yeah. trying to replicate Everything's it. on the table with us. Mm-hmm. So we're we're with you James. I mean everything's on the table with us.
0: Well, I will tell you, one of the fun things, you know, we have this store and people come in, they we, you know, we have a reputation as the place to come and um, we're going to listen to you and we're not going to make fun of you. and We're going to treat you like a, you know, respectful, respectful, like an adult. And I've had probably five or six stories of people saying, yeah, I was hiking and dude showed up in a black suburban and wearing suits. And they told me I needed to get the hell out of here. And so multiple stories like that, multiple stories of black helicopters that don't make any sound, you know? And so I, I I don't it doesn't need to be any one of those things like to me it's absolutely a combination of those things and you know like if you think about the fact that the very first UFO sighting in modern America happened here um, in Washington State and like literally in our backyard and like UFOs have been seen, like, coming from Mount Adams, and, like, you, if you're standing on top of Mount Adams, you can absolutely see right into Hanford. Like, it is 100% like, straight-line vision into that area. And so, like, um, I don't know if they knew that before they opened Hanford and they started messing plutonium. I don't know if the UFO showed up because they were smelting plutonium or refining plutonium there. But whatever the case is, like, it is a crazy soup of weird government stuff uh, going on um, with like the legitimate infrastructure investment here to prove it it's not like oh yeah there could be a like some kind of secret government lab no hundred percent there is a secret government lab the biggest and most important lab that America ever had it is the lab that kicked off the Cold War right so that is here but then there's all of this crazy stuff and Um, You know, when you look at things like uh, the UFO phenomenon, um, there are many elements of that that are 100% um, analogous to even like the fey phenomenon in Europe, where there are abductions, there are breeding programs, there are um, time loss experiences. And so, you know, whatever culture you're in, it's going to sort of explain it in the terms that we know. And so as the space age and atomic frontier open up uh, here in America, well, when we see these beings, whether they're, I don't think they're coming from outer space. I think they're coming from uh, other dimensions or some other mode of existence. Um, and we're interpreting them as, you know, from another planet. The, you know, Europeans interpreted them as coming from, other dimensions. There's, you know, uh, stories of little people uh, here in the Northwest of these strange small humanoids. And we've probably had five or six reports of small humanoids uh, coming coming to the store. You know, like I said, I'm not a expert in this stuff. And to me, it's just exciting to be putting it all together. my My goal is to keep an open mind. You know, and I can wrap my head around a Sasquatch. I can wrap my head around a Giant cat. When people come in and tell me a story about a three foot tall humanoid, like, oh, that's a hard one for me to wrap my head around. Like, I'm, I'm still puzzling. Like, how does that fit into anything that I, that I, that I know? Like, I, I don't have a, an explanation for it. um
2: What I'm trying to like start getting into this, and it's from this movie actually that I saw, and I was talking to you, Joe, about. It, I think uh, and Juan. But i just really starting to think that it's almost like we're like this layer of dimensions, right? That are all stacked upon each other, but with different frequencies and different consciousness and, and sometimes maybe the hallucinogens or whatever our consciousness is, is maybe some of this uh, what we're seeing. Now, I'm not saying that's the only answer, but I'm just starting to feel like it's just this mesh of dimensions <laughs> that like, that's why some of us see it and some of us don't because maybe we... Drank something, ate something, or got enlightened, whatever it may be.
0: You know, it's a really interesting point. I, so you listen to like these stories of people uh, who have taken DMT, uh, dimethyltryptamine, and they seem to have persistent, consistent, uh, alternate reality experiences. They report them to feel more real than normal reality. We have people from different cultures ex- encountering the same types of beings. Uh, the beings exist from one trip to the next. And the thing about DMT is, it is a naturally occurring brain chemical, right? It's not something that you know is coming in like psilocybin or something like that that doesn't naturally occur. And you know, they call it the spirit molecule. Uh, there was a guy, oh, I'm forgetting his name right now, who did a lot of studies on it. He like did clinical studies with it, and he kind of had to change his perspective. It sounds like what you're doing when you when this chemical is in abundance in your brain is that you switch from channel normal reality to these alternate channels like if you accept the notion that the brain is not a producer of consciousness but a receiver of consciousness just like a television set is a receiver of programming um, then the notion that there are these chemical environments that can switch your channel of what you're picking up is pretty interesting and so when i think about the gorge like there are so many unusual geologic Things going on here, so many unusual types of energy flow that you may come here, and for certain people under certain circumstances, you know that we can't even even begin to fathom, like humidity or temperature or solar storm activity or whatever it is, and it alters your brain chemistry in a way that switches your channel. You don't even recognize that this has happened because the reality that you're going to perceive, whether it's this creature coming here. Um, or not just feels like it's a seamless integration, right? And if you think about like when we have those DMT experiences, for instance, those creatures look at us and they say, oh, you've arrived in our world. Sometimes they're waiting for uh, the psychonaut. Uh, Other times they're kind of surprised and then they deal with them. Um, And so if we are able to, in our consciousness, travel to that other realm, there's nothing to say that entities from that other realm can't travel to our con- our realm in the same way. And so it's not just that those things are coming here, but we may be going there. Um and it may have something to do like I said with these uh brain chemistry things that are going on that allow us to perceive those alternate realities or those um adjacent yeah, realities. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that,
3: and especially in a place where you're at, where the veil is thinner and it's easier to pass through. And like you said, some things or the landscape changes, you've heard of that from people too, where it's almost like they walked through a portal or something, didn't even realize it. And the entire landscape changes for them for a short amount of time until they come out of it. So it could be something similar to that for sure. Uh, One thing I do want to ask you about, and we talked about earlier is your own little super soldier, Uh, story as well which I'm highly interested in because you were in the vehicle with Ward and he was filming you uh, on the way over to one of the click attack ape cat sightings and he tells me about this later and I'm like I gotta ask him about this when he gets on the show so if you could get into a little bit
0: of that would be great oh yeah so, uh, I joined the U.S. Army Infantry in 1988. And um, so, I, uh, when I signed up, I uh, volunteered to be part of a experimental unit. All right? And so, uh, back in the 80s, they were doing a lot of different studies. And one of the things that they did was they were asking themselves – so, like, there are times in war when a soldier will – charge a machine gun nest or dive on a grenade or do something which is clearly not in his best interest, um, but it critically turns the tide of battle. So they interviewed all the guys that they could, all the guys that survived those you know heroic moments. And they said, why did you do what you did? And they said, no one said it's because I love my country. No one said it was my awesome training. Every single one of them that they asked said, I thought my friends were in trouble. And so, uh, the unit that I joined was called, uh, the experimental unit was called a cohort unit. And normally when you go to basic training, you go to basic training, you do your, you know, marksmanship and all that kind of stuff. And then you go to advanced individual training and there you're broken up from that original unit and you go to a a different unit with new guys and you learn your skills for your uh, MOS, your military occupational specialty. And then from there, you get you get separated from that group of folks and you go on to your unit, which is a whole bunch of different people. And so at its core, what the cohort concept was, is that you're going to go through basic training with the same guys. And then you're going to go through advanced training with the same guys. And then you're going to go to your permanent duty station with those same guys. And the whole training program was based on building bonds of brotherhood. And so we did a lot of crazy things. And uh, to this day, in fact, uh, just on Saturday, I saw one of my basic training buddies. Like, you know, we're still great friends now, 30 years later. Um, he's literally saved my life at least a dozen times. And so we had this really unusual basic training experience and everything else. And um, I can tell you that, uh, of course, you know, I'm 19 years old and I am excited to be a soldier at that time. And, you know, we. We're always getting shots. Like I'm inoculated against five or six different kinds of plague and, you know, any kind of jungle fever you could get. And so, and uh, I was happily would sign any waiver, you know, uh, because when you are a soldier, you want to do all the things and be all the stuff. And so I received uh, dozens and dozens of injections. And I don't even know what they were. And I'm certain that I signed some waiver for every single one of them. Now, when I joined the army, I was a skinny guy. Um, I barely passed the strength tests, uh, to get into the infantry. Um, but by my second year in the army, um, I was running a five minute and 22nd mile. I was swimming two miles on my lunch hour. And when I would go to the, like the Nautilus machines, um, like, uh, on things like uh, triceps and uh, quadriceps and abdominal muscles, like I would max out the stack of weights uh, every single time. And like, it wasn't even that difficult for me and that continued on, you know, even after I left the army for for many, many decades um, to have that kind of crazy level of, you know, it, it was a dramatic shift for me personally. Um, and, you know, I, I don't really know if the injections had anything to do with it, but man, there was a crazy change for me personally. And, um, so in addition to that, you know, um, there's this thing called the expert infantryman's badge, and it's this test that, um, all soldiers take, but less than 2% ever achieve. And you have to go through, uh, I think like 36 different stations. It's like marksmanship and land navigation and, You know, you have to qualify expert with like uh, ten different kinds of weapons, and you know, you have to know how to do first aid and radio and everything else. So, very few people ever pass that test, Um, and it is considered the U.S. Army's highest peacetime award. Well, I got that in my first year, and again, I'm not—I'm not any kind of genius or anything like that. And so, you know, I really didn't think anything of it other than, oh, well, I'm just an awesome soldier, and that's great, and this is, you know, a ton of fun as a 19-year-old. 20 year old kid and then uh, a few years after I got this is sort of what kind of made me suspicious that something had occurred so might have been five years after I got out of the army Uh, oh so I should tell you that so we I was in when the uh, wall fell so the cold war ended while I was a soldier and they were getting ready to cycle us out and then um, desert storm ramped up And so, my original unit got disbanded, uh, but I stayed with my cohort army buddies, right? And then we got assigned to a new unit called the 199th Special Battalion. And so, they issued us all these patches, and the patches were essentially, there was a devil's head uh, on a spear and angel wings behind it. And so, it wasn't the special forces, um, but it was this special unit. And I remember... Like we all got issued our patches, and then I think the Ninth Infantry Division brass said, "Oh no, you can't have a patch that looks like the devil." So they had to change the patch to take out its eyes and all this other kind of stuff. So this sort of looks like this explosion kind of thing with a spear and th- these angel wings. But it was the strangest thing that you know we had this, um, uh, and and it seemed like they want us to do some weird stuff. Well, then the. Gulf War erupted. So, this is Desert Storm 1. And my unit was desert trained and combat ready. Like, we were 100% should have been in Iraq, you know, doing all the things. But they wouldn't send us. And my unit wound up training literally thousands of National Guardsmen, you know, like accountants and everything else to go to uh, Desert Storm. And they kept on telling us, yeah, well, we need you in reserve in case we need to fight this second front. But they would never tell us what this second front that the 199th Special Battalion with the devil and the angel wings on the patch was supposed to be doing. So, but we never got sent, which was really, really strange. Um, And then the Gulf War ended pretty quickly. And I remember I had this um, precognitive dream and... The dream was that the first sergeant called us into his office, me and like four other guys and said, Hey, I'm able to let uh, two of you guys go early, uh, but you need to give me a reason for it. And so this was the dream that I had. And then two days later, that exact circumstance occurred. And so I knew I was prepared for it. And I told him, well, I want to go to college and, you know, I I could start the semester if I left now and everything like that. So, um, so it was a weird kind of a, like the military career was there's some unusual things, but nothing like crazy. Uh, and then five years after I got out, um, I got a call from the Veterans Administration, and they asked me to come in for a special test. And there's, in fact, a, a series of tests. And so they paid for me to drive down to Portland, Oregon, and um, they put me up for three nights. And they did this wild, like utterly comprehensive physical. Um, and so like they did like nerve velocity testing and things like that. And uh, they determined that my lung capacity was in the top 2% of all human beings on Earth. Um, okay, that's kind of weird. And then they had this test that uh, was for pain tolerance. And so they had constructed this device. Um, it was sort of like a uh, like a scale that you could push and like get a weight measurement from. And so they put like a cork stopper in it and they push it into the soft part of your knee. And the idea was they wanted to... They said, as soon as it starts to hurt at all, raise your hand so we know to to do this. You know, so we know like what you're, we have a, a scale to measure your pain tolerance on. And I remember that guy pushing that thing into my knee and pushing into my knee, pushing and they maxed out the system and he was looking at me like, what do you, this doesn't hurt. And I mean, I felt pressure, but there was no pain. And so we tried it on the other knee and then he called in another guy and he, and they did it together and they were, they got a new device and they tested it too. And so. Apparently my pain tolerance was beyond their capacity to measure, uh, with the tests that they, their standardized tests for all soldiers in the military, there's a number (laughs) of cognitive tests that they did. And I remember the nurses gathering around and, and looking at them and like, wow, we've never seen, uh, people able to organize this information as quickly as you're able to do. And so, um, and like, uh, and so this, this battery of tests, Um, there was a number of other things that were, uh, putting me in this category that was either unmeasurable or, you know, within the top one or 2% of, of people. And like, since then, you know, like I will place a doku on my phone and, um, I will set it to the highest level and I will frequently beat hundred percent of all users, um, in a timed kind of a scenario. So. It could just be, I mean, honestly, I have no clue. And no one has called me up to be part of the Avengers. And uh, <laughs> I was just going to say, Captain
2: James Rogers is here. you know.
0: <laughs> and all of these awesome facts and $4 will get you a cup of coffee. And so, um, but I've, I've, again, you know, I'm just trying to put the pieces together. And the one thing that sort of tipped me off was that weird physical, like my other army buddies didn't get, weren't called for that. Um, and you know, some of my other army buddies, they eventually got their expert infantryman's badge, but they certainly didn't get it in their first year. And, you know, as I look back, uh, and, you know, I've had other, uh, unusual experiences. So there's some precognitive dreams that have occurred. Um, there were some other like weird training scenarios that they put us through that seemed really not standard, I'll just say. And uh, since then, you know, I've uh, uh studied aikido martial arts, and we would do zazen sitting meditation while we're doing that. And that's a thing where you're sort of sitting across from the other people in the room. Your eyes are uh, at a soft focus, but they're open, and you know you're you're silent. <clears throat> and I would look across, and I would see auras around people, and um, it got to be where excuse me, Uh, some folks, um, I would sort of arrange it. So I'd sit across from, there's this one, uh, Hawaiian, um, sensei, her name was Tina, Tina cook. And she would light up like a Christmas tree. Like, and, and I'd got to the point where I would just like sort of arrange it so I could sit in front of certain people who would light up more. Um, and, um, there got to the point where I could just walk into the dojo and I would see these different intensities of light, you know, floating in different, (coughs) excuse me different areas. Um, and, um, and then also there's this, uh, directional sense that I have where, um, it, it is very difficult for me to get lost and you can drop me anywhere. And I have a sense of, uh, generally where it's North, South, East, and West without, you know, astronomical markers and things like that. And so again, I don't know. Uh, I have no, proof of anything and i don't know that any injection was anything out of the ordinary um i i have no way of proving any of this kind of stuff or anything else but we do
2: know DARPA. i mean even as recently as like 10 to 20 years ago where it's like injecting people and you maybe even 30 years ago with nanobots right nanotechnology where they were tracking people's heart rates their pulses their temperature so to me, it's not even like, I, I was just like, yep, sounds like they uh, got you with like right away because not, not necessarily, it's just the pain tolerance. And then like, they're going to, and then it makes me think of that nanotechnology, right? Like giving him like the, his own GPS and you're not going to know, right? It's just going to be like second nature to you. You're just like, oh yeah.
0: yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. And that's exactly how it is. It's sort of like, you know, like when I'm at the gym, like, oh wow, that's kind of curious. That's the whole stack of plates. All right, you know, and like I said, uh, is um, it was I think the two smartest decisions I ever made in my life were to join the army and to get out of the army, and I had, you know, some really wonderful experiences. You know, they called our unit the Toys R Us unit because we got all the experimental gear and we were using experimental weapons and vehicles and all kinds of crazy stuff. I made some amazing friends, and you know, we're still good buddies to this day. And you know, I um. I kind of like the idea that, you know, like a lot of veterans get a short change kind of deal where they leave worse off than they went in. And, you know, I just count my lucky stars that um, maybe something happened and I wound up better (laughs) when I started.
2: All I could say is, (laughs) is (laughs) that was, that was killer, man. I was like, I was on the edge. I was like, man, what the heck? Like, I was like, And especially with the physical, like, obviously, like, they were wanted to see afterwards, like, hey, man, he's been out for a little bit. Let's see if this is still working. And then I'm sure they upgraded it. I'm sure they've and there was a lot of stuff, too, with like. uh, Timothy McVeigh, right, like there's a lot of this thing called like sheep dipping, they call it sheep dipping when you're like in the military and they get you out of the military but you're still like an intelligent military intelligence. They like give you like a dishonorable or honorable discharge. And a lot of the people have got been sheep dipped, have also been on different experiments, whether it be like MK Ultraist type programs or like super soldier type programs. And there's plenty of articles and um, evidence throughout the years of China, Russia, us, like you said earlier, uh, Nazis. And it seems like it all really started between this World War II Not as much World War I, but as soon as it was World War II and the Nazism, which I think is more than just Nazism, I believe, like, you know, there's puppets involved, and I think there's a lot of occultic angles and maybe other puppet masters. It might not be occultic, but there's other puppet masters at play that I think are playing a bigger game, and I completely agree with you that there's all aspects of it. This is occultic, real, experimental, like, you know what I mean? There's no, like... One thing to put it on. But before we get out of here, could you let everybody know and remind everybody where they can find you and um, plug anything that you want to plug? Yeah.
0: So come check out Margie's Outdoor Store.com And that's where we give updates. We've got some of the cool stuff that we've seen. We've got a little paranormal section. You can file a paranormal report online there. And um, that, of course, hooks into our social media. So uh, Margie's Outdoor Store on Facebook. And uh, the thing, though, is please come visit the Columbia River Gorge. It is one of the coolest, like, plain old adventure areas. Like, if you're just looking for rafting or climbing or hiking or uh, being in the desert or the rainforest, it's a world-class adventure area. And the fact that it's crawling with cryptids and high strangeness just adds to the fun. And so, come visit my store, Marge's Outdoor Store, right there in Binge in Washington. I'll be honest with you, Sean.
3: I know James doesn't know this because... Uh... Been on a mission to marry uh, Jen Saki. Uh, it, it, we're, we're ginger. Uh, it, it's a ginger thing. We, we have this this bond that we have to get to, and I feel a little shortchanged today, man. We got a real super soldier in here. She's probably like listening to him, like just totally just shirking me off right now. I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to get some injections myself, man. I think I'm gonna have He's to. He's gonna boost enlist.
0: Up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You might get the wrong
2: one, man. Yeah. It's kind of a gamble. Kind of a gamble. You, know, you're you never half know what Prima, you're going to get. Half ape, it's like a mean? box <laughs> of chocolates,
0: man. It's a box of chocolates. <laughs>
2: well, you know how we do it here. Wake the fuck up or get woke the fuck up. Brat, brat, bird killers.